There is mercy to be found, but you will only find it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not find mercy that is lasting, mercy that is real, or mercy for the making right of everything that is wrong in you until you look to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bible with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5. We've been studying the book of Galatians for some time now. We've been in this particular portion of Galatians for some time, but we are going to finish it, Lord willing, this morning. We are in verse 22 through verse 26. Last week we looked at these verses, but dwelt on the contrast that was being made between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. This morning we're going to focus more on the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in the life of a believer. And I'll remind you that this entire section is governed by the words in verse 16 when Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Live life in the Spirit. Now last week I went to length to show the difference between the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, but I want to remind you how to give answer to the question, what does it mean, what does it look like, or how do I walk in the Spirit? That seems to be the question that dominates this portion of this letter. So this is the third week I've read this statement to you, and hopefully some of this statement is beginning to sink into your heart and mind and to mine. The statement again is this, walking in the Spirit is a determined activity. What I mean by that, it is something that you will or will not do. It is something that must be intentional on your part and mine. This is not something that God's just going to look down and and smite you with this ability to walk in the Spirit. This is something that you will have to discipline yourself daily to do or not. While it is intentional, there is no foolproof step. There are no lists that I can give you that you can check off day by day to say, I've done step one, two, and three, therefore I must necessarily then be walking in the Spirit. It just doesn't work like that. Any desire to walk in the Spirit must stem from a heart that is intent on drawing near to God in Christ. That's where we must start. When you look at the Christian life, and you are imagining in your mind a map, so to speak, of the Christian life. This is the X where it says start here, begin here. This process of being sanctified, a great desire to draw near to God in Christ, to be further conformed to His image, to have the very character and nature of Christ produced in your Life. I want you to begin with me this morning. Stick your finger or a pencil or something in Galatians chapter 5. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 
And because we're told there by Paul some of the very same things that he said in Galatians chapter 5. And so it's helpful for us to compare Scripture with Scripture, to see what Paul said in one place and another, see how that might compare with something that Peter or John or some other author of Scripture may have said. And I want to preface the reading of verses 6 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 this way. Paul uses these words, do not be deceived. And I'd want to preface this by saying where there is a true work of God in salvation, there will be a true work of God in sanctification. Where there is true justification, there will be true sanctification, though in varying degree. Sanctification, again, is something that we wax and wane in. It's like one step forward and sometimes four or five steps backwards, but then we always come back to that one step forward again. And in a special season of grace and mercy, we might actually make progress to two or three steps forward before we begin to backtrack again. But where there is a true work of God in salvation, there will be a corresponding true work of God in sanctification. Over time, in the life of a believer, there should be marked progression in holiness. You will begin to look more like Jesus. Not physically, we don't even know what Jesus physically looked like. But you will, as you read the scriptures and as you see the life and the character and the nature of of Christ come off the page, then your life and mine will begin to take that on. You'll begin to look more like him. I heard heard H.B. Charles Jr. say this a couple of weeks ago when I went to the Banner of Truth Pastors Conference. He said it so clearly and so, so helpfully to me. He says, it is the declared will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. And that again, it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. That's a succinct way of saying and answering the question, what is the will of God in my life as a believer? As having now come to Christ, what is His will for me? His Spirit uses His Word to make me and you look more like Jesus. It's simple yet profound, isn't it? That is the end goal of your salvation and mine, the glory of God in a host of people who have assembled themselves into a body known as the church, who are more and more resembling their Savior, who are more and more resembling the one who shed his blood for them. So if you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me at verse 9, because Paul uses the same language that we've seen in Galatians chapter 5. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, 
nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, see how it's following the same pattern that Paul would write in Galatians? But you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, I said this morning before Renee's baptism, not everyone has a dramatic conversion testimony. Some do. Some of you do. Some of you know what it is like to be identified by that list of sins in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. Some of you may still bear the marks of that lifestyle of sin. Some of you may still have very vivid memories in your mind of that lifestyle of sin. But thank God what is true In the 11th verse, introduced by this word, but, the word of contrast, but you were washed. The filth of sin has been removed. We saw that played out in the baptistry just a few moments ago. The imagery of washing, the imagery of the old man and all of his deeds, or all of her deeds, and all of the accompanying stuff that goes with that being immersed into the water, or being planted into the ground, just as Christ's body was buried, we too, Paul says in Romans 6, have been buried with Him through baptism. We have been united to Christ, and so that just as Christ lived, then up comes our body out of the water as well, symbolizing this newness of life that has been given to us by the Spirit of God. And it is true in every way that we have indeed been washed. Are you washed in the blood? An old hymn that we know and sing so often. But not only does Paul say you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart. You've been identified as one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. After reading that list of sins in verses 9 and 10 and what we've read and looked at in Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 16. Is it any wonder that Augustus Top Lady wrote those words that we sang this morning? Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. If your sins are not dealt with, if your sins are not covered, if there is no atonement made or redemption found for your sin, then you will perish in them and spend eternity attempting to make payment for them. But the scripture tells us very plainly that no man, no woman, either in this life or in the life to come, a combination of those, eternity, future, looking forward as far as you want to look, no person will ever be able to make atonement for their own sin. That's why hell is such a tragic, horrific prospect 
for any who will not come to Christ. It's eternal. It's, yes, it's eternal separation from the goodness of God. That's how some people describe hell, and that's an aspect of it. The goodness of God has been withdrawn. There is no more common grace given to anyone. Common grace being those things such as, such as breath, life, housing, whatever it may be, a Christian upbringing differs in particular grace being the grace that God has set upon you in Christ. No more common grace. Separated from God for all eternity, yes, but also this other aspect of hell that often isn't mentioned. It is the active presence of God in His abiding wrath on you or whoever is there. Now combine both of those things and the hellish nature of hell is set forward, isn't it? Being separated from the goodness of God, but yet God is there in abiding presence, carrying out His full wrath against the one who would not come to Christ. Aren't we thankful for the washing, the sanctifying, and the justification that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God? Else, this would be our eternal destiny. But thankfully, God has intervened. (laughs) He has stopped some of you dead in your tracks. Just like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, you were in your mind, in your heart, with your hands and with your feet, set out intent on doing harm to, to God, Christ, and His church in any way that you could. But God, in mercy and in love, intervened in your life as He intervened in mine and has set us on a new course. Praise Him for it. But now He's doing something in me And he's doing something in you. This is where we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5. What is he doing? He's sanctifying us. How is he doing it? By giving us the Spirit, the Spirit who is active in our lives, making us look more like Jesus. Read with me these verses again, beginning in 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you were looking for somewhere in Scripture that defines for you who Christ is, what is His nature, what are His characteristics, then look no further. You've just read it. Christ is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Certainly, there would be other things that the Scriptures would add. This is not an exhaustive list of the person of Christ, but it's certainly some of the main characteristics. And these are the very things that the Spirit of God, who was sent by the Father, by Christ, into the heart of a believer is accomplishing in your life. This is what he is making you and me look like. I want you to first note something before we move on. Note this, the unity and the diversity of the work of the Spirit 
in us. And this mirrors what God is doing for us on a corporate level. And what I mean by that, there are different gifts that all of you have than the ones that I have. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. The nose can't say to the ear, I don't need you. The body needs all of those things to function as a healthy body and accomplish the things that is set before it. But it's also true in the life of an individual believer. There is unity and diversity. The unity being the fruit of the Spirit. Singular fruit. But then the diversity comes in what that fruit looks like. It's as if you're taking the fruit of the Spirit in your hand and turning it and looking at all the different aspects of it. From this side, it looks like love. Turn it, it looks like joy. Turn it, it looks like peace and so forth as you go throughout this list. But let me point out something that should be obvious. What's not here? What is not listed in verse 22? There is no mention of speaking nor the interpretation of tongues. There is no ability to perform miracles here. There is nothing that would define the, quote, higher life. There is nothing about visions, nothing about dreams, none of those things that are seen by so many in our day as being evidences of the Spirit's work. None. So what is a real and true evidence of the work of the Spirit? It's going to be more love more joy, more peace, more long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control exhibited in my life and in yours. That's evidence of the Spirit of God being at work in your life. I can say that because we do not naturally produce these things. We do not naturally have joy in the midst of of horrible circumstance. Quite the opposite. But with the Spirit of God showing us the truth of Scripture and continually putting before us the hope that we have as Christians, letting that be the governing principle of our life, then we can walk through some horrendous, horrific circumstances and still have the joy of Christ in our heart. These things are not natural. They are produced by the Spirit of God. So don't let anyone ever, ever put down the fact that there is no manifest evidence of the Spirit in your life or in the corporate worship of our assembly or any assembly like it. Because according to Scripture, the manifest evidence of the Spirit of God in a corporate meeting or in my or your life individually is more of the very things that are listed for us in the 22nd verse. Don't be ashamed of that. Glory in that. And please understand what I'm about to say. If it were the tongues speaking or interpreting, the visions or, or dreams or higher life of all of these things, if it were those things... Please understand me carefully. That would be too easy. And what do I mean by that? 
to subdue the flesh in me, to subdue the lion of pride that dwells in my heart, and if you're honest, probably dwells in yours, to subdue any work of the flesh that is mentioned in these verses or the ones that we read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to subdue that, to bring it into submission, and to have us glory in that work, even going so far as to thanking God for it, far more difficult than a momentary utterance. Far more difficult than laying in your bed at night and having a dream. Far more difficult than having a vision. To glory in the heart work of Christ in your life is far more difficult. And that's real and true evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you and that salvation has come and that in increasing measures, these virtues are becoming the defining realities and characteristics of my life and yours. That's hard. It would be much easier to have some of these other things. But let the Spirit of God really begin to root out. Let's just pull one out. Selfishness? Or another, self-control. To let the Spirit of God really begin to do work in your heart and mind so that you can govern yourself, govern your thoughts, take up the loins of your mind, take every thought captive so that you can govern your actions so that you don't do that which you know is dishonoring to Christ, harmful to yourself, harmful to your family. That's hard. But the Lord does it because He's gracious. He's full of mercy. And He wants you and He wants me to look like Jesus. So now let's look at these in some detail. We're not going to go into great detail. The fruit of the Spirit is first of all, love. You're familiar with The word agape in the original language, a self-sacrificing type of love. It's the greatest of Christian graces. That's why it heads the list. It is the one that gives life to all of the others. Remove love, none of these other things can live. None of these other things can breathe. According to Paul, remove love and everything else that you do is just like you're standing there beating a gong or a cymbal. To read those words out of 1 Corinthians 13, just listen as I read them. Paul gives a definition of what love is. We read them so often. We have them hanging in our homes. We have them placarded everywhere we can see them. Those things are good and right. We need to see them and be reminded of them. But just to hear them again, the definition of what love is. Love suffers long. Is that the way you love your wife? Is that the way you love your husband? Is that the way you love your children? Is that the way you love your grandparents or your aunt or your uncle? Is that the way you love your brother and sister in Christ in this place when they do something that grates on your nerves a little bit that you just don't like? Do you suffer long with them? Love is patient, suffers long, and it is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Have you ever wondered why Paul begins by defining love by what it is not? 
Because this is love that is produced in your life and mine by the Spirit of God. And it differs greatly from a worldly perception of love. The worldly type of love is not patient even a little bit. Nor is it kind. It does envy. It does parade itself. It is puffed up with pride. It does behave rudely. It does seek its own, but not so the kind of love that the Spirit of God is producing in you and me as followers of Christ. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is what heads the list of what the Spirit of God is producing in your life as a believer. This type of love. I think we can broaden that a bit. First of all, it's love to God. That we would love God is a miracle of grace in itself, isn't it? That we would love our brother or sister in the Lord is a miracle of grace in itself. But it's also love, which Jesus said, is the fulfillment of the law. Both, both the first table of the law, those things which have to do with our relationship with the Lord, and the second, which has to do with our relationship to one another. Love. That's an evidence of the Spirit of God being at work in you. How about joy? Joy is the theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He writes there, and I'll just remind you, rejoice in the Lord always. True Christian joy, the type of joy that is produced in you by the Spirit of God, is joyful in every circumstance. Now, don't make that say something that's not intended. doesn't mean you're happy in every circumstance. There is some great correlation between joy and happiness, but they separate on certain points. I may not be happy about a certain event in my life, but I can be joyful in it because Christ has not changed. He's not forsaken me. He's never left me. My hope remains the same. My prospect of heaven remains the same. The truth that my sin has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west is still the same. All of those things are still true. The circumstance that I'm walking through may be absolutely terrible, grievous. And it may be something that takes me a great time or that I never really fully get over. But my joy in Christ can remain. I can take joy in my Savior in the salvation that He has brought to me. It transcends circumstance. 
Some of you have been around people like that. Another brother or sister in the Lord who have gone through some absolutely tragic situations. And either you've asked the question out loud or you've thought it in your heart and mind a thousand times. How? How do they do it? The only answer is Christ in them. Christ in them. And this abiding presence of the Spirit that carries through, that transcends circumstance, this is evidence of the Spirit of God being at work in you. How about long-suffering? Patient. Having endurance. Is that you by nature? Does this just come easy for you? Something you've never struggled with? How quickly is our patience tested? And how quickly do we fail? I mean, make me sit behind somebody who's looking at their phone at a red light and won't go when the light turns green. My patience is tested. But yet you can, that's kind of a frivolous example. Put me or put you in some trial given by the Lord of bearing some illness or bearing some other type of physical infirmity or bearing some relation trouble. How quickly does it take for your impatience to rise? Not long. And so if there is any measure of long-suffering or patience in you or in me, then that is evidence of the Spirit of God working, producing in us that which wasn't there before. Kindness. I'm going to lump a couple of these together. Kindness and goodness, gentleness. Go back and read what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just back up and read right here in this context of the works of the flesh. And you'll see again and be reminded that these things such as kindness, goodness, and gentleness aren't definitions of the natural man. The works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and everything else like them. Compare those or contrast Contrast those to kindness, goodness, and gentleness. They're on total opposites of the spectrum, aren't they? What takes a person out of this first list and places him down into the 22nd verse? There's only one thing that does it. There is no reformation of character. There is no amount of 
Discipline, the only thing that moves a person is the grace of God taking you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's the way Paul would say it in Colossians 1.13. But the list keeps going. And it ends with self-control. I want to read you a quote concerning the definition of self-control. This is the grace which gives victory over the desires of the flesh. It is a virtue that is exercised by the Christian and which produces in him the desire to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Self-control, how we need it. You realize, as I do, left unto ourselves, we would destroy ourselves. But the Spirit of God has wrought in us this grace or virtue named here by Paul as self-control. The ability to yield to the promptings of the Spirit. The ability to yield to the directive of Scripture. The ability to listen to your conscience. Your conscience being that part of you that knows innately right from wrong. Self-control is the ability given by God to listen to your conscience and obey its demands. When your conscience tells you, or when the Scripture tells you, this is not bringing glory to God. This is not glorifying Christ. This is hurting and harming you. It is hurting and harming your family. It is hurting and harming your profession. It is hurting and harming your witness to the world around you. Self-control is the ability given you by God to listen, to heed prayerfully, even through great struggle, the things that are pricking your conscience. Thank God that He produces us in us self-control. Now we move on from the list. And from looking at those, from looking at the unity and diversity of the work of the Spirit in us to the corresponding work of crucifixion. Verse 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice again the, the very specific, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. I like Matthew Henry's definition of what the word crucify means here. He says it means to seek the utter ruin and destruction of a thing. To seek the utter ruin and destruction of a thing. So let's read it that way. And those who are Christ have sought the utter ruin and destruction of the flesh with its passions and desires. Honest question for you. 
you all, as I do, most likely have a besetting or besetting sins. Those sins that just seem to come up over and over that grieve us, that we struggle with. That struggle is going to remain to some degree from now on. But let's just be honest and ask the question, have we sought the ruin and utter destruction of the manifestation of that sin in our life? Far too often, the answer has to be no, doesn't it? Why? A lack of several things, one primarily being self-control. So what do we do? Pray. Ask God, beg of God to produce in you more self-control. Perhaps it's another one of these things. Perhaps it's just what we consider the base virtue of kindness. Beg of God, produce in me more kindness so that I can be a more faithful and useful servant for you. And you can run through the list on each one of those and make specific application however you desire. But the truth of verse 24 is, again, there is a corresponding work of crucifixion in the life of those who are Christ's to have the flesh with its passions and desires. Don't you love the honesty of Scripture? The Scripture doesn't gloss over the allurements of the flesh. It uses two very strong words, passions and desires. It's as if the Spirit of God knew. Go figure, imagine. It's as if the Spirit of God knew the struggle that was going to take place in your heart and in mine. That's why we've called this this study of this paragraph, the war within, it's real. It's real. And you feel it. But there's victory to be had. Victory that comes to you in Christ alone. Let me finish quickly with the third point out of verse 25. Not just the unity and diversity of the work of the Spirit in us, Secondly, the corresponding work of crucifixion. But thirdly, this is a doctrine that goes from heart to mind in everyday life. Notice verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And read that verse this way, the first half of it, if we live in the Spirit. Those things that you are believing, those things that you know to be true, those things that you have accepted by faith and are resting in, trusting in, those things that are in your heart and in your mind, if you are living in these things, Paul says, let us also walk in them. Let us also live our lives in accordance to the truth that we know. Bringing these things together from heart and mind into everyday life. In verse 26, he ends by saying, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I want you to see the contrast that Paul makes with this verse. Go back to verse 15, same chapter. He says, beware 
if through biting and devouring one another you consume one another. And then he details and rehearses for them the works of the flesh that produce that biting and devouring and consuming of one another. Then he contrasts with the fruit of the Spirit and he ends by making application or giving an example of what this looks like. Don't become conceited, proud, arrogant, provoking one another or envying one another. The implication is here that we'll do the very opposite. That these things the Spirit of God is producing in us will become more and more evident. Much grace is needed. Much grace is available. Much help is needed. The helper has come. It pleases the Lord to help his weak and embattled saints in this war of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Be encouraged. Be comforted. You are not in this alone. Just like that servant in the Old Testament, open your eyes, look up to the hills, and what you'll see there is the help of God ready to ride down off of that mountain into the valley of your life and give you the help and grace you need in the time that you need it. He's faithful. He'll do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we ask, Lord, as we turn our attention now to observing the supper, that you will use this ordinance to bless and edify your people. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.